Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Now, this week, we are announcing a very, very brief change. We are sending the podcast off on its podcast holiday to the podcast beach to recharge its batteries for the month of August. However, Lucy, we thought we cannot possibly allow our listeners to go uncatered for in the ear department can we no that would be a terrible dereliction of duty so we have put together some programs to um we hope delight and sustain you throughout the month of august some nuggets and jewels and ideas and highlights of what we've been talking about over the past year and also we're still going to be around here chatting about the stuff we chat about which is you know gardens and books and especially we're not going to forget our secondhand book challenge because Alex we've been hearing from more of our lovely listeners haven't we this week oh absolutely I mean you're writing in your droves thank you so much we have a wonderful letter from someone who says some years ago while doing research for a historical novel set in the 1930s I came across what appeared to be a complete run of left book club volumes tucked away at the back of Barter Books in Annick. And then he says, needless to say, when I left, the collection was no longer quite complete. So That's a brilliant find, isn't it? it is, I mean, can you imagine? I guess that must have been, you know, in its entirety would have been huge. He wouldn't have bought the whole thing. But do you think, I mean, immediately some of them had gone, you know, gone out with him. I assume 
people just started to kind of put the collection back together. It's yes. one of those wonderful sort of never-ending fourth bridge sort of tasks. Yes, con- constantly renewing itself. We had another letter actually from a wonderful listener. This one's not about the second-hand books, though we will carry on talking about second-hand books and please don't stop looking out for them and telling us about them. Another letter at letters at the hyphen tls.co.uk. I'll tell you the title of it. The title of it is The TLS and Cat. So we like that already. We already, that rose to the top. I mean, don't (laughs) think we ever, you know, we read in strict order, but occasionally, (laughs) occasionally something might rise to the top of the post bag. So it says here, I thought I would share this photo of my cat with an absolutely brilliant name. My cat, Vincent Price, snoozing on my newest issue of the TLS. And then our lovely listener goes on to say uh, lots of nice things about the podcast, uh, which I can't possibly say, and it will spare our blushes, but we are very happy to to hear your comments, especially when they're as nice as that. The problem here is that we didn't see the picture of Vincent Price. I don't know whether it didn't come through or the attachment didn't work, but please, would you mind? Vincent Price. Yes, we're longing to see. I think, in my mind, he's a very tall, elegant, skinny, grey cat, but maybe I'm being too literal. What do you think, Alex? Well, I think he might be a sort of bruiser. I mean, you're right. That would fit the actual Vincent Price, wouldn't it? But I'm wondering if he's a great big Tom who just makes his presence felt. Who can say? We need to know. Perhaps he's a tiny winsome kitten (laughs) or a she. Let's not be binary about this. We're just we're agog about Vincent Price. But Alex, what's going up on this week's show anyway? Well, we're kind of going a bit holiday vibe in the beginning of August. So we remembered that the wonderful Mary Beard came in to tell us about what the Romans brought back from their holidays. That was back in May and we discovered some amazing things, didn't we? We discovered that people buying little t-shirts, you know, saying I went to Paris and all I got was this lousy t-shirt, etc., were not an invention of the recent past at all. The summer is nearly upon us and many people's thoughts will turn to holidays and travel. And if you do go on holiday somewhere, you might bring something back. A t-shirt, a figurine, a reminder of the beauties of your trip or just a fun thing. Lots of people do, of course, and it turns out we've been doing this for centuries. Our own classics editor, Mary Beard, has reviewed two new books on the subject of ancient souvenirs. And she's here with us now wearing her kiss me quick hat, I imagine. (laughs) And she's going to guide us through the Sticks of Rock and the Venus de Milo statuettes. (laughs) Mary, thank you for joining us. I'm sorry for revealing to the world that you're wearing your kiss me quick hat. I know it looks it looks great. I look great in it. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. So you start your piece by telling us about a trip um, that Hadrian took in 130 CE. What was he going to see and how do we know about that trip? This journey by Hadrian is one of my my kind of favourite, you know, favourite moments in ancient history of of all time, really, because Hadrian was the greatest travelling emperor. Unlike others, some of whom just stayed in Rome, basically, Hadrian went sightseeing, not just, you know, he didn't just go to fight the barbarians, he went sightseeing. And his most famous sightseeing uh, episode is when he goes to what the city we now call Luxor uh, in Egypt um, to see the great colossal statues which were already thousand years old by the time he got there, great pharaonic statues. Now, there are all kinds of things which are kind of odd about this trip because um, Hadrian goes to see these statues 
just after he's um, lost his beloved boyfriend in the Nile, um, a mysterious case of drowning. Uh, and so you imagine that the atmosphere in the Imperial party was not as joyous as it might have been. But what they were going to is one of the most famous tourist sites ever in the ancient world to see these colossal statues. And it was not just because they were colossal that they were famous. It was that one of them was supposed to sing to you if you were lucky. We don't quite know how this worked, um, or we don't quite know whether it wasn't a trick by some um, good entrepreneurs in ancient Luxor. But if you went at dawn, it made a kind of whistling singing noise. And that was what you went to see. It was a miraculous statue. Um, and we know that Hadrian went one morning um, and the damn statue didn't sing. So they had to go back the next day and it did sing. Now, why we know about this though is even in some ways more interesting. It's because uh, uh, one of the ladies in Hadrian's party, um, a woman called Julia Balbilla, um, composed some poetry about this occasion, about the failure of the statue to sing on day one, um, but the successful singing on day two. And she actually had someone carve it into the leg of the statue itself. Now, so, you know, a bit of van vandalism. A bit of vandalism. And heavens, he was not the only one, because one of the things that you did if you went to see this statue was you left your mark on it. And there's sort of a hundred or so uh, carvings, you know, a kind of Kilroy was here sort of moment um, on, the, the, on the, the leg and body of the statue where people say, I came and I heard it or it worked for me. And so you've got that kind of, I mean, I think it's, it's a sort of exciting direct connection with the past, you know, because, you know, I've been to see these statues and there, I look at it and it's you know, an old pharaonic statue, but there on its leg is this lady who visited it in 130. And you can still clearly see that and read it. And you can still see it and read it. You know, it is exciting. Mm. Suppose one of the things that that tells you, obviously, is that there weren't sort of tourist sites in that because there wasn't tourism. So, I mean, your first thought is, well, you'd never be able to carve something on the leg of a statue now because it would be, you know, behind ropes and, you you know, you couldn't get anywhere near it, could you? You'd end but... up in the nick, I think. <laughs> exactly. There was a more sort of, I suppose, being the emperor, you know, helps, obviously. But there was a, there was a more sort of direct, yeah. uh, physical yeah. sort of interaction between uh, things that people visited. And I think that's that's important. And that's that, I think, is what's very in your face when you look at this, because I think, uh, the, the emperor obviously has a and the emperor's party, you know, you know, get a bit more free reign than other people. But, you know, loads of people, there are other women, the governor of Egypt's wife, you know, this kind of thing. They also left left their mark. And, you know, I, I, I couldn't, you know, because of my job professionally, I couldn't possibly recommend that people tried to do this anyway themselves because they would of course get into trouble but I think there is Ooh. there is something sort of nice about that memorialization of your presence at a monument I suppose now we do it with selfies don't we I mean um you know the selfie which everybody says oh gosh you know, how tedious they, you know, people only come to this monument and what do they do? They they take a picture of themselves on their phones, you know. Um, and I think that's, that's 
you know, that's kind of important. You know, we when we go to these tourist sites, um, we we want to kind of memorialize our 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 visit there. And we do it in different ways. So I think the selfie mm. is, you know, it's quite an important bit of modern touristic culture. Uh, well, you heard it here first. No, I'm sure that is it. I'm sure that is true that people it's a very human thing to want to do to say, look, I really was here. It really did happen and I can look back on it. I was really there. And I, and I think that's you know, I think we should be a bit more tolerant of that. You know, you look, you go to the Louvre and you look at endless people having, you know, doing selfies in front of the Mona Lisa, and you, you know, you do think, oh, how, how irritating! I want to see this painting, whatever. But actually, you know, they're they're doing what Hadrian's party did in in 130. They're kind of they're they're marking their presence. They're remembering it. It's souvenir, you know, Ooh, remember it. Yeah, yeah. Mary, I must say, about to go completely off track here, but we we encourage digression, don't we, on this podcast, Lucy? Yes, she said with trepidation. <laughs> it puts me in mind of many years ago. My husband was covering the uh, World Cup in Germany and his duties took him to Nuremberg uh, and he was sort of walking around looking at it before there was a match there and looking at this, you know, absurd monument to, to fascism. And he saw that somebody had written the word Cypress Hill on one of the, the seats and Cypress Hill, an American black rap band. And he thought how much Hitler would have hated that. <laughs> and so that this moment of sort of, I was here, yeah. is sometimes very, very, it really kind of juxtaposes past and present in a way that's actually very satisfying yeah. sometimes, doesn't it? Yeah, I think, yeah, quite pleasing. Yeah. And, and quite constructive, actually. You know, and I, yes. I think that in some ways, um, you know, if we think about our own current statue wars, you know, maybe a bit more constructive graffiti you know, might be one way of um, uh, engaging and showing our disapproval, if you like, uh, of some of these people who stand in public places around us. You know, don't just have to take them down. In some ways, you can actually kind of, you can pull them down to size in cleverer ways. Mm. And pretty, I think is one, one of the ways we do that and always have. So the uh, Julia Balbilla did her graffiti or got someone else to, as you say. Imagine that she kind of hitched up her skirt, climbed up and, you know, with her tools. I don't think that's very likely. I think I think she probably paid uh, paid quite a hefty sum to have a local craftsman immortalise her verses on the statue. Yeah. <laughs> Hadrian also, he commemorated his trips, didn't he? You said he was a, he was a great sightseer in, in his villa at Tivoli, which was actually a kind of great big sort of encampment wasn't it a big great big area what how how did he commemorate them tell, tell us about his villa well I think the villa is very interesting people um people now kind of take Hadrian's villa at Tivoli um you know a bit for granted in fact as you say it's, it's the size of a town <laughs> Adrian built this extraordinary city for himself um you know a few miles outside Rome but what is very special about it, apart from all its um, little kind of bits of luxury and its underground car park and things like that, uh, underground chariot park. Chariot park, brilliant. One of the things he did was he replicated um, bits of his empire, his empire in inverted commas, in his villa. So he recreated um, the famous temple where um, 
the, the statue of the Aphrodite of Cnidos stood. Um, he recreated Egyptian monuments. He had uh, the Caryatids from the Athenian Acropolis um, displayed in front of him in, in his villa as if somehow um, what he was doing was in, you know, creating a microcosm of empire through its cultural highlights at this extraordinary country, country theme park, really, I suppose, is what it was. It's, it's an amazing idea. It makes it sound like Las Vegas, yeah. got the Eiffel Tower and That's the it. pyramids and, yeah. and all of that. Yeah. And everyone says, ooh, how, ooh, oh, how awful. But actually, it's a kind of amazing thing to do. Yes, you know, it's, it is, you know, I, I think there must probably have been some people in the second century CE who thought how naff this is um, when they saw what Hadrian had done. But in some ways it is, you know, it's another way of memorializing. It's a way of, you know, how, uh, you ask yourself the question of how do I fit into this world? How do I see it? <laughs> how do I imagine it uh, when I'm not there? And you know, one of the ways to do that, if you've got the money that Hadrian had, um, is of course to rebuild it, and you know there's a long tradition of that too. You know they, that you know within Christian architecture in the Middle Ages, you know there's there are people rebuilding the Holy Sepulchre in their local church. Um, you know it's a, it's about it's about making visible things that you want to remember, and I think we shouldn't want you know. You know, we, we should knock it a bit less than we mm. usually do. I mean, we see it even now, don't we see it at, at something like the cast courts at the Victoria and Albert Museum, where you can go and see yeah. Trajan's column and all that. I mean, it's obviously a tradition that hasn't entirely sort of died out, even kind of museum sort of circles. Oh, I, I, I think absolutely. And, uh, and you know, the cast courts, I mean, they were, you know, for a while, terribly unfashionable in the mid 20th century. You know, um, uh, people thought, oh, you know, plastic casts, you know, uh, how dreary, you know, plastic casts of Trajan's column, really. Um, I, you know, I think one of the sort of side benefits of postmodernism, in a way, has been that we've started to think about replicas and reproductions and imitations mm. in a way that's a bit more generous to them. I've always found them really mesmerising, actually. Mm. And partly that's because you stand next to them all together and you think I'm in a room of these huge plastic casts. Why? And they have this kind of sort of power of being all together, I suppose. And also you experience them um, in a whole range of very different ways from the way you experience the original. It, was, it wasn't until I went quite recently that I realised you could actually sit in the bottom of Trajan's column. No, you could, you could go inside it. It was sort of hollow. Um, and so it gives you a, a different way uh, of engaging with, object, with objects that somehow you think were just the same. You know, they are replicas, but they're doing something different to you. And you know, I think that's that's like my Uzo bottle that I bought in Plucker several years ago, um, full of not very nice Uzo, but in the shape of the Venus de Milo, you know. And I have the Venus de Milo on my mantelpiece. That's both about admiration. It's about cutting her down to size. It's about a joke, you know, because it's an Uzo mm. bottle, and it's about ownership. Um, and I think the whole the culture of um, those kind of memories, whether we call them souvenirs or not, is, is I think very interesting. 
um, about what it says about us and how we want to engage with, with the places that we go. So as you say, Hadrian was able to do it by basically recreating it because, as you say, it was his empire and he had all the money. Um, but you, you said also that so-called ordinary people did travel around a fair bit. People got around the empire, didn't they? So what, what did they bring back if they didn't have... Uh, uh, what was their equivalent of the of the Venus de Milo statuette with Uzo in? Yes, well, they couldn't they couldn't quite do what Hadrian did, uh, and I don't think that people, very many people, except the very rich in the ancient world, went on holiday. But they did travel. They, you know, they're, they're, the Romans, you know, are much more mobile uh, than we think. And when they went places. They also wanted to remember. They probably were going for work or whatever, but they wanted to remember. And they, they bought, it looks like, the sorts of things that we buy. Um, there is a, a, a wonderful um, uh, glass bottle in the shape of a famous statue from Antioch, um, the so-called good fortune Tyche of Antioch. Um, probably originally filled with perfume or maybe the ancient equivalent of ouzo. Um, and there is something terribly similar to my ouzo bottle, you know, that uh, I'm going to this city and I, I've seen its famous, its famous statue, and yet I'm bringing it back in a different form. I'm bringing it back, you know, filled with something in glass. And one of the things that that I, I think people aren't very well aware of, partly because they don't often get put on, you know, spotlit display in museums, often kind of crappy little things, but there are endless miniature replicas of some of the most famous works of art in antiquity. I mean, the, the statue of Athena that was inside the Parthenon, you know, you can find plenty of her in, you know, in cheap terracotta and or on little cheap gems and you know, they're they're into the same mechanisms of of recall and ownership and souvenir and no doubt partly present and gift that we are and also I guess telling somebody that you've been there mm. you know you, yeah. you you're displaying mm. something to say yes I've, yeah of course I've been there haven't you Yes, that's right. And, and of course, it's because in the ancient world, we don't know the history of these objects when we find them. Um, so we're never quite sure whether the person who owned this little um, terracotta Athena, whether they'd been to Athens or whether actually it was a sort of, um, it was a symbol that substituted for a visit. I mean, there are plenty of people, you know, who have postcards or posters on their wall, I do, of works of art that we've never actually seen. So they fulfil quite complicated, ambivalent relationship between um, the experience of viewing or the desire to view or the parade of a particular you know, cultural cachet, I guess. it's No doubt it was as complicated in the ancient world as it was now. There are disciplines, aren't there? You mentioned there are disciplines that study this kind of thing, uh, kind of now, as it were, souvenir theory and theories of place. So can, can these help in figuring out what the Romans did with the objects and what they meant to them? Yeah, I mean, I think they can. And I think that anyone who tried to look at ancient souvenirs as what clearly some of these objects are, you know, I think um, 
you know, it would be very foolish to do it without thinking about how modern sociologists have discussed souvenirs. I mean, the, the problem as always with the ancient world is quite how similar is it? Quite how, you know, is this an identical experience? Is it partly overlapping, but partly very different? And there's one particular group of objects that both the writers in the, the books I discuss talk about, to extraordinary, rather beautiful glass flasks with um, the cityscape of the towns of Baiae and Puteoli from the Bay of Naples. Roman, they look like Roman souvenirs. They look like, you know, I've been to Baiae and I've got, I've gone home with a glass flask with uh, the, the, the seafront of Baiae scratched out on it. Where you can, and it's not always easy, but you then look at where these things were found and several of the ones we know were found in graves. And you think, okay, this is a souvenir, but I don't get buried with my Uzo bottle. Um, so um, are, are these things doing something very different in the ancient world from what our souvenirs do? Maybe they are. You can't quite tell that they are fulfilling the same function. There's always a danger, as you say, isn't there, of, of because because we, especially because we recognise the object, there's a danger to leap to it and go, well, they were doing what we do. That's right. And, and in part, maybe they were, but in part, maybe these are fitting into the kind of culture of the ancient world in a significantly different way. Now, I can't begin to think what the connection between a glass flask with the cityscape of Baiae on it and, and the rituals of death. But it looks as if there was one in a way that there isn't now. Is it so widespread that, I mean, you know, sometimes people are buried with favourite objects. I mean, could it be that sort of simple or is it too widespread? Does it happen too frequently for that to be likely? Um, we're dealing with quite a small sample. <laughs> let me say, let me be honest. Um, it's very hard to know. Um, and, you know, you can say, look, this is very precious to somebody. What do you do with burials? You, you, you can't get buried with something very precious to you. Uh, and it, that, it's as simple as that. Um, some of the inscriptions that are also um, on them, um, there's the kind of the cityscape is engraved, but then there's little messages are engraved, also look a bit like funerary things, you know? you know, the, the memory of my bright light and this kind of thing. Um, so, so I think it's puzzling. I, I, but there, my, my favourite example, though, actually, is one where I think for once we can actually be um, pretty certain that we're dealing with something which is absolutely spot on our experience. Because a few years ago, there was a, a, a metal stylus for writing uh, discovered in Roman London. And it's got a kind of very, very tiny, difficult to read verse on it. But as far as you can decode it, and, uh, and I think it's this is fairly certain, it does actually say, um, you know, I, I went to the big city and all I brought you was this rotten pen. <laughs> Partly, we are in the same world. Though I think at the margins, we might not be. That's perfect, isn't it? It's, that's, it's wonderful to find something like that and go, damn, see, you yes. show it to someone and say, look, that present wasn't so bad. <laughs> they were like us, after all. <laughs> we can think that we're part of a long and noble tradition. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Beginning with at least Adrian. Yes, yes. no need to feel ashamed. <laughs> You've made me feel so much better about my Goldfinch fridge magnet, I must say. Oh, yeah, I th- I'm a big fan of all these things. The Romans would have... Um, so liked the fridge magnet, I think. Both beautiful and useful for holding up your shopping list. They'd also quite like a selfie, I can't help but imagine. You know, if only had Hadrian had his smartphone. You'd be sifting through them even now, Mary. That's what you'd be doing. (laughs) Thank you very much for enlightening us and liberating us from any lingering shame we may have felt about our our (laughs) knickknacks. Thank you so much. Thank you. Still to come on the show, our roundup of summer reading with Toby Lishtig. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode.
now it's that time of year when, despite flight cancellations, heat waves, and rail strikes, our thoughts turn to hanging around at Heathrow or Paddington for four to six hours and then having to stay inside all day because we've got heat stroke. Or, alternatively, stretching out on the silver sands in front of an azure sea, banana daiquiri in one hand and Herodotus in the original in the other. Whichever way it cashes out, you're going to need something to read. So we asked some of our wonderful writers what they're packing in their designer holdalls and little bags for life this year. Here to help us rummage through their luggage is Toby Lishtig, fiction and politics editor of the TLS. Thanks for joining us, Toby. Hello. Thank you for having me, as ever. Well, we can gang up now and together we can have a very exclusive talk to the first person on the summer books reading list who is none other than Alex Clark. It's a How bit of a cheat. That? It's a bit of a cheat, this, isn't it? So <laughs> well, we've got... I thought you were going to say a coup. I, I think say... it's a coup that we've yes, got. Yes, quite so, Toby. Uh, I don't I don't open my raffia bag for everyone uh but I have to say that I'm first on the list I think uh because of the alphabet it's always it's always I think it's an alphabetical order and it's always good to have a name quite up the top I don't think it's in order of importance I will say when you do these things we all know this you're absolutely terrified and you think well I really you know there are luminaries being asked to pick their reading and I'm really glad I don't know what their things are it's a sort of race to the top of the kind of obscurity chart sometimes isn't it <laughs> no and i mean nobody says i will you know immediately go to the airport bookshop and buy the first thing with gold letters i can see and I would you simply, didn't say that either i Alex, didn't did say you? that and i i simply i don't find any holiday like that complete without a trip to the travel exclusive section with the great big books i just it's just cheerful isn't it buying a book at the at the airport but no i didn't you're absolutely right uh no, it you is, would like it is cheerful you, would you, like, have, you, have, no. you have chosen a great big book, though, nonetheless. I've chosen so, an enormous book. I started off with Pogma Home by Patrick McCabe, which, well, what can we say? It's a, it's a kind of family story, but it is a novel in verse. And it's about a family of Irish emigres and their life in London told over many years. Now, the rather delightful thing when somebody says, what are you going to read? Is you can't be expected to be super well versed in it because it's what you're taking not what you've already read so I am going to tell you that I'm excited to know how it's unfold going to unfold but I don't know that yet what I do know is it's big it's in verse and it's about the Irish in Britain over the kind of last half of the 20th century and and, and this century. David Collard reviewed it for the TLS last month I think it was in the May the 20, 20th issue something like that um, and was very uh, in favour of it full of praise so um, you, you listeners could, could look up that review as well. I would, I would also come up with a, a little side thing which I, I don't really know how to say this without sounding uh, frankly like the sort of landed gentry which I'm not but I have a man that helps with my field because I've got well, a that's field a, that sounds exactly it, it, it like it absolutely sounds like a Jim, Jim Carner and what that actually translates to is can you help me fight back an acre of hawthorns and brambles actually what that really means but he is the most extraordinary reader and he came he saw this he often comes in and we have a chat about books always lending me books and I lent him Pogue Mahone before I had a chance to read it because he was so excited to see it there and he says it's absolutely brilliant so David uh, Collard and Neil my field man have given it the thumbs up so I'm hoping I will too. There's no higher praise and do you want to just re remind us what Pogue Mahone means? Am I allowed to? Well, I think so. Or you could do you could do as kind of a gentler version. I should say. Well, it, it, it means kiss my ass. There's no TLS, TLS listeners don't. We don't can handle that gentility. Yeah. 
they, they're fine. They can handle, they can handle that. I've also chosen just very briefly All Our Yesterdays by Natalia Ginsberg, who's a writer I really, really love. And Invisible Child, it's a Pulitzer Prize winning book by Andrea Elliott. And actually, this is a Hay thing, Lucy. You'll remember. Yes, we I do met remember. her at Hay. And she talked so vividly about this, this kind of mammoth work of nonfiction that she mm. spent spent years putting together a feat of reportage, really, uh, about the homeless children of Brooklyn. That I thought, well, that's something I'm going to read because one of the things I suppose about reading when at your leisure is it's really nice to have a kind of balance of stuff. And that often includes for me fiction and nonfiction. Yeah, yeah, no, and it sounds like a, a, an amazing work. It's kind of... Um what it's kind of it what do you call it it's like embedded reporting as it were it's yes, in-depth yes. sort of reporting yes and it and it is very big and I do like a very big book to read at my leisure don't you yes it's it, well especially if you're not the sort of person I'm actually very bad I probably shouldn't admit this I'm not very good at taking care of books very well my book's tend to look a bit battered and rubbish and I don't mind that because I think they look loved and lived in so as long as you don't you know, as long as you don't need your book to stay pristine, I love having a a, a, mm. a great big book to lug around, and then you spill things on it, and you know it gets trodden on or something. Yeah, and you get bits of sand in it. You, you you want that when you pick up your books years later to remember, you know, what it was you stained them with and where you were with them. I think it's really important, actually. Yeah, I I, I think so. Did we did we notice any trends or any themes emerging this year? Do we think in what in what people are choosing? I think you you've started one, Alex, because quite a lot of people were talking about Natalia Ginsburg, it seemed to me. Yes, yes. Caroline uh, Moorhead, I think, who's also recommended Janet Malcolm's Reading Chekhov, which I, I thought, right, I must get that for my own list. But yes, she she recommended. I mean, I think people are really interested in rediscovery, aren't they? Is that something that that you've found, Toby? Yes, rediscoveries and sort of old, old classics that they've been meaning to read for a long time. So um I know Serena Dimitrescu has um, tipped a book that I'd, I'd never heard of by Matteo Caragiale, Rakes of the Old Court, which is a Romanian classic about men drinking and gambling in pre-war Bucharest. Sounds utterly brilliant. So I think, yes, those books that we've been meaning to catch up on for many years and also reissues as well. I think, yeah, that, that tends to be quite a holiday theme, doesn't it? Yes, and there are different attitudes um, because I think, well, we do summer books every year and uh, for the past couple of years, uh, people haven't been moving around very much uh, at all, been or been kind of worried about it if they were. And there's a different attitude here. Some people were saying, "Okay, I'm going to zip around as much as I can." One of our contributors has already been up the side of Mount Etna and told us what book she was she was reading. Um, and some people saying, "I'm going to stay put. I'm going to stay put, and I've got all these books lined up to read." There's kind of different vibes out there, aren't there? So I think there was probably last year when people were doing even more staying put, I think there was kind of more of a need to be transported, wasn't there, by the books themselves. Whereas I've noticed in this selection, there is there is more sense of people actually being able to go on holiday this year, which is nice. Not everyone, but most people. Yeah. So, Toby, whose bag of books would you like to just quietly make off with if you're mm. standing waiting for your luggage? You just sneak off with it. Just sneak off at the airport. Um, well, that is a good question. Possibly Claire Loudon, partly because I like her dedication to oeuvre. So she's basically, she said she's been having a Mary McCarthy-ish May. Um, I mean, I like the idea of that to start with. Um, she's read her intellectual memoirs and then uh, her, de uh, her debut novel, The Company She Keeps, and she's going to carry on 
with McCarthy. Not a writer I know, I mean, I know a bit about her, but I've read very little of her. So she's going to read a biography seeing Mary Plain by Francis Kiernan and then Mary McCarthy's novel, The Group, which I've always been meaning to read. And I think, I think it's a sort of a jealousy thing. I mean, you know, we can all do what we want, obviously, but I find with my job as fiction editor, I tend to sort of read relatively widely um, in terms of the new novels coming in. And, you know, I sometimes have uh, opportunity to catch up on those books I've always been meaning to read, but I very rarely have the chance, or rather I re very rarely make the time to actually really dive into a, a whole catalogue of books by a single author. And in my fantasy holiday or my fantasy desert island by myself with my ginger. <laughs> by by myself or by my, Did I say by myself? <laughs> That's very revealing. You yeah. did. My great, great asperity, yeah. really, didn't Absolutely. you? Absolutely. Force. Yeah. Entirely alone, left to my own devices, <laughs> I would like to dive in and spend a month, maybe four months, I don't know, with Mary McCarthy. Um, and I'm, then, a bit, know, I'm a bit worried, though, because you did say you hadn't read much of hers. What if after the first book you were like, yeah, it's fine, and, that, and then all you had was Mary McCarthy? Well, uh, you know, I, I'm prepared to take gambles on these things. And, you know, poss possibly that's the way to really get into a, a writer's work. You, you keep plugging away until you find the ones you really like. And I suppose if it all, you know, it was a disaster, I'll just get my Kindle out. Well, I think The Group is a book that is so entertaining and I really mm. I do recommend it. And also, you know, interesting to read alongside a sort of kind of modern version of it, Lara Feigl's The Group. Yes, it's um, so, last you know, year. Yeah, exactly. So that's that's a kind of interesting thing. But I think also, Toby, what we should say on a desert, fantasy desert island, wouldn't it be great to have a kind of floating sort of mobile bookshop that perhaps came around once a week and you could sort of get a little, you could row out to it and perhaps, you know, that, that as this we're creating into a different fantasy. program that reminds me of another one. What's your, what's your fifth record? <laughs> Nobody ever says on that program when they say, what's your luxury? I'd say a shop. That's what I'd want, but nobody ever says that, do they? I think, I'm sure, so, I'm sure someone said a bookshop, but you're right, it's an all purpose shop. <laughs> that would be a brilliant idea, wouldn't it? Can I have? Yeah, can I just? Yeah, John Lewis. I don't always all day long. I'd want John Lewis. Uh, anyway, that's We're, beside the point. So we are after, digressing. After we are. you come back from after you come back from your of your exfiltrated, I imagine, by your family who are missing you desperately, uh, Toby, uh, from this fantasy desert island. Who else on this kind of who who's taken your eye as something you think? Well, is, that's, that's a, a good recommendation. A couple of people take my I mean, this is not necessarily a book I want to read, but I was very interested in Joyce Carol Oates's um, decision to read. Uh, I'll read her excerpt briefly. A portion of my summer reading will be devoted to research into the extraordinary career and life of America's father of neurology, Silas Weir Mitchell, most famous or infamous for being the highly respected physician who devised the hellish rescue that was the catalyst for Charlotte Perkins Gilman's story, The Yellow Wallpaper. And she goes on and talks about the, the books she's going to read around him. And what I particularly like about this is she, she, she ends by saying, there's no telling where this subject may lead, but no doubt to a surreal sort of quasi-historical fiction. And I like the sense you get there of Joyce Carol Oates, who is still indefatigably producing, you know, two novels a year, as far as I can gather, well into her 80s. And, the, you know, this is her writing process. She's, she's taking these books on her summer holiday, and no doubt by next January we will be getting proof copies of her new novel about Silas Weir Mitchell. So I thought it was quite a nice little insight into her process. Yes, I loved that too. I thought, my God, you're on it again, JCO. <laughs> I thought, here, here we go. It was I really, I, absolutely, I've kind of 
it was a, a chuckly moment though it was when you do again it's a sort of insight and of course this is partly also what happens when you read people's recommendations you do get little glimpses into their lives don't you yeah. oh, I love to, but yes exactly i love to think of benjamin markovitz reading philip larkin's a girl in winter recently and i thought what a juxtaposition of, of a sort of anglo-american with somebody we think of as so 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 english and that you know fascinating really and that's led him on to talking about tessa hadley and mm. then i started thinking about philip larkin in concert with tessa hadley and it, it's it's just very interesting isn't it yeah mm. yeah it really is all everyone shoved up together in the same holiday bag um <laughs> alex whose whose bag would you um be tempted to to sneak off with do you think well, you see, I, I, I swear. I, I suppose you've got your own bag. Bit. Sorry, you but can't I've have got your my bag. own bag. But I did yeah. a little bit. I did a little bit of. I'm having one from hers, uh, one from his, and I, I love um, the Japanese novelist Mieko Kawakami, uh, and uh, Barbara King has recommended All the Lovers in the Night, which I haven't read. So that was something that I thought I, I, I might want to take. I've mentioned uh, the Janet Malcolm that Caroline Moorhead recommended reading Chekhov. And then also really another reading project, actually. Nicholas Shulman talked about really getting to grips with the work of Percival yes. Everett. Not Ooh, a yes, novelist I've yes. ever, ever read. And I thought, yeah, that's a really... That's so a really I, good idea. I've read a couple of his novels. Um, Erasure was one of them. Mm. Extraordinarily good. Um, and I'm not Sidney Poitier is another one. Um, and I've read that too. It's absolutely yeah, brilliant. He's, he's really, he's really brilliant, isn't he? He's been writing since the early '80s. He's, he's written about twenty novels, and he's sort of reasonably well known in some circles, but basically not particularly well known, particularly in the UK. And he's having a bit of a revival over here, as in some of his books that have never before appeared in the UK are being published here. And I think it's great because he really should be better known. He's a, he's a fascinating writer. Yes, I thought I Am Not Sidney Poitier was so, it was, wasn't like anything else I'd ever read and it did immediately make you want to think, oh, okay, what else has he done? Mm. Um, yeah, that, that would be, um, what does she say? Um, Nicholas Shulman says he's a writer of staggering gifts and the range of an inquisitive blue whale. Which is a good, a good, a good way of Lord, I mean, it's immediately made me think, what is an inquisitive blue whale like? You can imagine them sort of just bumping up to you, kind of. Pretty anyway. inquisitive, I think. Yeah, <laughs> pretty, pretty inquisitive. Lucy, we're going to have to turn this on to you, though. What are you going to be taking? Well, that was one of them, actually, I'm afraid. Well, it's not one of them because you, because she's she's sort of saying all of Percival Everett's work, but I would definitely uh, be interested in that. I'd quite like to have Andrew Motion's bag because he's chosen Elizabeth Lowry's The Chosen. Um, in fact, we, we had Elizabeth uh, on the podcast. I haven't read the book yet and I very much want to. It's about yes, Thomas yes, Hardy's right. reaction to, to the death of his wife, Emma Hardy. Um which just sounds um it just sounds brilliant and interesting and, and all of those things um and I very much want to read and have not yet you two probably have you've read everything The Last Days of Roger Federer by Jeff Dyer have you read it I'm reading it and I'm really Aha. It. okay I, good. I haven't and I would like to and she, yeah. but she, and she also. I have read though that the class swapped puts her hand up. I have read one of the other books that she recommends, um, Elif Batiman's Either or, which I hugely enjoyed. So, you loved, oh, good. I'm glad you loved it because yeah. I've been meaning to read that. Claire Loudon reviewed it for us last yes, month. Yes, and she, she was very, very pro. It. Yeah, it's yeah. really, and, it's really, really good. And does one start with that one or the earlier one, The Idiot? Because it's a sort I, of a follow up to The Idiot, but you can read it separately. 
it is you absolutely can read it separately i would especially since we know you're going to be four months on this desert <laughs> island i would absolutely definitely uh start with with the idiot and i actually to be honest i might go back and read the, the possessed her first book was non-fiction because she's just such a gifted writer and sometimes you know the heart does occasionally sink at the kind of you know talks about her life in books sort of marketing line but she mm. does it so she's so brilliant at conjoining literature and life and working out this kind of alchemy and how people's lives can be shaped by books as well as all the other circumstances in their lives that they then bring to bear on reading those books it's she's a great 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 writer okay well she's she's going in the bag as well um mm. And can I have one more? Please, can I have one more for my for my eighth record? Mm. Is uh, Neil Stevenson's Regina Rini has chosen Neil Stevenson's Termination Shock. She says the weary techno prophet turns his side eye to climate change, which another um, sort of science fiction speculative fiction writer Kim Stanley Robinson did with his last book, which I read. Which was it, I mean, it was quite a difficult read. You know, it wasn't it wasn't all fun, but it was incredibly interesting and actually quite hopeful. Um, and Neil Stevenson's really interesting. He writes great big books, Alex. If you they're they're you know it's seven eight hundred pages type thing. Uh, and I do think it's interesting that these people who were writing about colonizing Mars and you know quite hard science fiction is what they were doing. Quite a lot of them are now turning to climate fiction basically and having a look at, at this planet as it were and saying okay what's going to happen is it yet called cli-fi i'm afraid it is, it uh, is. Yes. okay okay unfortunately right. i wonder if that's something we and I, i'm sorry to we mustn't end on a sort of a sort of gloomy note but i wonder if that's something that we should mention to ian samson who i mean ian samson always makes me laugh but the beginning mm. of his little choice starts Appalled, dismayed and disgusted at the general state of things, I am looking forward to spending my staycation this year with books that promise to plunge me deeper into despair. <laughs> and I salute that, um, Ian, even though I think, you know, throw Jilly Cooper's riders in there or something like that, you know, come on, it, cheer yourself it, up a bit. <laughs> it doesn't sound as though he's going to, does it? It doesn't he's really. No, he's chosen George Monbiot's Regenesis, Feeding the World Without Devouring the Planet, which I think actually does offer some Meth hope. There's a message of hope there, isn't there? An op you know, an op a solution, perhaps. I think so, yeah. He also says uh, Hannah White's Held in Contempt, which uh, Edward Dox talked about recently uh, on the podcast with great urgency and conviction. And that one I don't think is terribly hopeful. And then he says, to put the icing on the whole sorry cake, Dave Golson's Silent Earth averting the insect apocalypse. So that's not it's not the most it's not the most fun list, is it? Well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean there are solutions. And I think even Hannah White solutions. It's fun really what, what we need. I have to say there's no insect apocalypse in my kitchen at the minute. But anyway, uh, this heat wave, guys. Uh, I know, it, yeah. I do like to think, as we see that, you know, you've, we've mentioned a couple of times, very sort of narcissistically, really, books that have come up on the podcast uh, that have appeared, that now seems to have nudged people. Do you think we're, we are fulfilling our dream of being trendsetters and tastemakers, Lucy? Well, we can but dream, Alex. Not for us to say, is what I'm going to say. No, that. that is for <laughs> others who will no doubt very kindly uh, agree with us. Uh, right. <laughs> 
Or not. Or not. <laughs> uh, and Toby, we've just got time before we go to ask what you will be taking when you're not stealing other people's bags. What will you be putting in your bag? Well, um, a couple of things, but I'm going to start off by breaking all the rules, which is that I'd like to mention a book that I've already read on my summer holidays and that isn't yep. out yet. <laughs> so that I is definitely that's, breaking the rules. That's definitely yeah. breaking all the rules, but it's, so it's out in very early September. So, it, you know, late summer and actually going away in September is, is lovely. Um, if I, you know, if I didn't have small children and schools and things like that to worry about, I would definitely be trying to go on holiday in September. And I did go on a, on a holiday in May to Italy and I took this book with me. It is called Dandelions and it is by the TLS podcast one and only Fiolena Dutzi. Oh, I um, have heard of her. Yes, she's very good. Well, it's <laughs> You're not allowed to do that either, but do tell us about it. No, absolutely. I mean, private eye will be all over this. I'm going to hold up my hands. Of course, you know, Thea is a dear friend and dear colleague and she's wonderful. But this book is utterly nothing to do with the fact that, it, that it's by Fiolena Dutzi. It is totally brilliant. And actually the one of the highest bits of praise I can say about it is I completely forgot it was by Thea and I was just reading it as a book. It is about her family. It's sort of through the voice of her nonna, this, this woman in her mid-90s, reflecting on her long life and the families shuttling between Italy and the UK. It was a wonderful, you know, I, I was in Italy when I was reading it, so that, that was wonderful. And it's about these different generations moving, moving from Italy, to, from the north of Italy to the north of Manchester, and the kind of social history around that. And it is so beautifully written, um, Dandelions, I massively recommend it. And uh, yes, it's out early September, please go and read it. So that's well, one of my recommendations. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know if I've got time for a quick other you one. You have, go on, um, go on. But a, you have one that won't get us in private eye for long. It won't get us in private eye. I'm desperate yeah. to read these. I, I know that sounds like long wrong, but it's, it's so good. Um, the other is a, is a book I've just started. It's a book of short stories. It's called God's Children Are Little Broken Things. It's out next month. It's by Arinze Kandu. I hope I pronounced that correctly. He is a Nigerian novelist, and I've just read the first two, short, or rather he's a Nigerian author, this is a book of short stories, and I've just read the first two. It's these beautiful, beautiful stories about gay love in Nigeria, um, you know, relationships, um, sort of Lagos life. It's really, really beautifully done. It comes garlanded with recommendations by people like Damon Galgut, Edmund White, Adam Hazlitt, and I'm really keen to take that onto my desert island and, and, and finish it in peace, as I mentioned. Brilliant. Well, yes, do think of us all alone on your desert island. Will he do. won't. He <laughs> won't. He won't. He'll be too busy reading those brilliant books and having a great time. <laughs> <laughs> See you soon, Toby, and thanks so much. Thank you. time for this week i hope you enjoyed listening to mary beard and toby lishtig thank you for listening to the tls podcast produced by charlotte pardy and we'll have another roundup for you next week but for now from lucy dallas and from me goodbye
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.